Okay, good morning. Good to see you all. I'm Neil Martin, Associate Pastor here at Crossroads, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, For um, those of you who are new or visiting today, it's great to have you here. And if you are somewhat new to our church and you're interested to find out a little bit more about what all this craziness is about, um, uh, we actually have a uh, time with the team meeting scheduled after this service, before the beginning of the next service. And that will give you a chance to meet uh, other members of the staff and ask any questions that you've got about who we are and what we're going for and what we stand for. And we'd be really delighted to see you there. Um, So at the end of the service, if that's for you, do just uh, uh, follow out through the door that you came in. And as you go around to the left, you'll see some signs which will lead you down through the hallways to the place where that's going to happen. So that's time with the team after this morning's service. Uh, For those of you who are more familiar with uh, what we're doing, you'll know that we're in a kind of fast-paced sprint through uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians at the moment. And uh, as we start, I just want to give you a bit of a refresher on the context there. Whenever we're running quickly through a Bible book, it's great to keep in mind uh, the big picture, who it was written by, who it was written to, uh, when and what the circumstances of its uh, writing were. So I'm just going to bring a map up on the screen here so you can see uh, what it is that we're doing. Just ooh, look at that. Just refresh it. Yeah. All right. I'm not expecting you to be able to see the detail on this just now. We'll zoom in a tick in a minute. There's Michigan. So you can see roughly how this thing scales. This is the Eastern Mediterranean. And um, this is the scene of the action for a lot of the familiar events and places in the New Testament. Here's Corinth down in southern Greece. But also you'll know from the other letters that we have in our Bibles that uh, some of these other towns are important. Here's Thessalonica. Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians written there. Here's Philippi, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians written there. Whoops, that's not anywhere particular. Um, Here's Ephesus, Paul's letter to the Ephesians written there. Uh, Colossae, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians written there. And actually, this whole region is Galatia, uh, and this is where Paul's letter to the Galatians was written. So you can see that this is a really important little piece of geography. Actually, another piece that's important for us today, here's Paul's home church. Uh, Paul came from Antioch. Um, And, you know, he was in close touch with the uh, believers who were in Jerusalem as well. Uh, But what we find as we go through the New Testament is that from Antioch, Paul was sent as a missionary three times uh, to go out around the eastern Mediterranean and bring the good news of Jesus to people who had never heard it before. Uh, So uh, the way that that worked out historically, he went off on his first missionary journey. And actually that circle I drew, Galatia, is the place that he targeted. Uh, And then he came back. And then he went on a second missionary journey. And uh, that was when, for the first time, after working his way through this whole Galatian region, he then busted into Europe. uh, And he came down here through Macedonia and down into Greece. Okay, so we'll zoom in now and look a bit more closely at Greece. So Paul came down the spine of Greece here, and in about AD 50, he arrived here at Corinth, which is the place that our letter today is written to. Um, Matt did a great job of setting up the context for us here in our first sermon. You might remember it sitting on this, I think, merry little isthmus was the phrase that you used, which amused me, Um, a trading crossroads, trade going north-south over land, trade going east-west Um, uh, across the ocean. Uh, And in places like this, they tend to be very cosmopolitan uh, and have people from multiple different cultures with multiple different religious backgrounds, uh, multiple different 
uh, ethical norms and social norms. They tend to be a little bit laissez-faire. That was definitely what Corinth was like. Um, But also Corinth had a bit of a twist to it. You see, Corinth was, even though it's smack dab there in the middle of Greece, Corinth was actually a profoundly Roman town. Now, there's a reason for that. About 150 years before Jesus was born, the Greeks rose up against the Romans. They said, we don't want to be under your thumb. We used to be an empire ourselves, thanks very much. Uh, And uh, we want you to go rule somewhere else, thanks very much. Now, the Romans did to the Greeks what they did to everybody who played that game. They annihilated them. They raised Corinth to the ground, which was their capital city, and nothing happened on that spot for 100 years. And um, it was only when Julius Caesar popped up in about 50 years before Jesus was born that he refounded Corinth, and he very deliberately refounded it as a Roman city. He filled the place, actually, with his retired generals and legionaries. And so this place became a little kind of bastion of Roman culture uh, in the Greek world. Uh, Roman in terms of the way that uh, its politics worked. Uh, Roman in terms of the way that its ethics worked. And also, particularly relevant for our letter here, Roman in terms of the way that the whole class structure was set up. You see, the Romans was, uh, Rome was a city and the Roman Empire was an empire in which there were the haves and the have-nots. Uh, There were the privileged and the unprivileged. If you were born in a citizen family into wealth, your life was marked out as one of privilege and wealth. And if you were born into a family which was a slave family and had no wealth, your life was marked out as a, a life of slavery and lack of privilege. And so there was a huge divisiveness baked into the Roman Empire, an us and them culture. And we're going to see that repeatedly as we go on through our book of um, Corinthians here. So anyway, that's the place that Paul showed up in AD 50. And um, he um, spent 18 months there. And he planted a church. And then after 18 months, remember, he's been sent, hasn't he, from his home church in, uh, in uh, Antioch. He needs to go home and give a bit of a progress report. And so this is what Paul did. He sailed across the ocean here to this place, Ephesus. And from there, he went on back to Antioch. And he told all the folks there what was happening. Uh, And then, on his third and final missionary journey, he came back and Ephesus was the target. And so, a couple of years after the action uh, of Paul reaching Corinth for the first time, he shows up in Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, on the other side of the water from Corinth, he starts hearing some rumors about what's going on with his old friends. Again, you might have picked this up from the previous uh, sermons. There's a couple of different uh, sources that he hears from. Uh, But the basic message, it seems, was not that good. In fact, he wrote a letter to them that we don't have, the lost first letter to the Corinthians, um, which is referred to in our Bibles in 1 Corinthians 5. And the content of that letter sounds like it was pretty ominous. Paul had to write to the church Uh, to warn them about allowing people who were completely immoral uh, just to play a a, a central structural role in their church and carry on taking communion and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't sound good, does it? Uh, And uh, the rumors just kept coming. And so in the end, Paul sat down and wrote a second letter to the Corinthians, which ironically and confusingly is our first Corinthians, um, the letter that you have in front of you. Uh, And uh, Paul decided to address the problems that he was hearing about. Now, importantly for our text today, I want you to see that when he addressed those problems, he did it with a strategy. 
So Paul wasn't interested in writing to the Corinthians, just kind of shooting from the hip, saying, here's all the stuff that I've heard, and here's, you know, here's all the things that I think you should do about it. Uh, Paul wasn't interested in just identifying the what, the, the problem, and all the ways in which it needed to be corrected. No, Paul's strategy was all about identifying the why behind the what. Maybe you're familiar with that kind of strategy. Maybe you've used it yourself. Uh, maybe you've had it used on you. Um, it's something that good parents do, isn't it? And I, I can certainly remember a, a few situations from my past where I experienced this. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was a little boy, growing up in the southwest of England, uh, I liked nothing better than kicking my rugby ball around the garden of our house. Now, I'm using some unfamiliar terms here, so let me just quickly set this in context. Here's the house where I grew up. Go on. It's going to get there. Okay. Now, the garden, uh, that doesn't mean a vegetable patch in English terminology. That means the whole kind of lawn and all the flower beds and everything. Gardening is a very serious preoccupation for we Brits, and uh, my dad uh, particularly so. So we have this very pretty garden. Here's my bedroom window up here. Here's my dog. And, um, <laughs> and here is the rugby ball of which I speak. What a beautiful object. Okay. You've heard about soccer, you've heard about American football, but here is the true sport of sports, um, rugby itself. A little bit different in shape from your American footballs, um, not quite so pointy, but still capable of uh, uh, inflicting some fairly serious unintentional damage. And so the day came, I was kicking my rugby ball around the garden and I kind of shanked it uh, into my dad's rose bed. Um, my dad had this kind of I don't know, 18 or 20 foot diameter rose bed in the middle of the garden, his pride and joy, uh, full of all of these specimen plants. And um, I didn't just shank it into the rose bed, but I, uh, I, I hit it straight at my dad's prize standard rose bush right in the very center. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about standard rose bushes. This is what they look like. Um, so standing up proud in the middle, this beautiful, bushy, mature growth of roses, um, uh, up there on a, a slender stem, uh, the pride and joy of my dad's horticultural life. So I kicked the ball and I knocked the top clean off it. <laughs> Not good. Um, so you can, <laughs> you can picture the scene. I imagine here I go inside, I tell my dad what's happened. Uh, and at this point, my dad has an important choice to make, doesn't he? Uh, my dad at this point can prioritize the what. He can say, what in the world do you think you're doing? You will never kick that ball in my garden again. Go to your room. He can focus just in on my bad behavior, can't he, and command that I stop. That would probably be reasonable. But he also has a different option. Uh, if my dad has the presence of mind to do so, he can recognize the fact that this is what we call in the parenting trade a teachable moment, right? Um, he can sit me down and tell me something now about standard roses, uh, he can help me understand they take an awfully long time to grow like that. Uh, he can tell me about the intricacies of the grafting process by which the bushy top is joined to that long slender stem. He can help me grasp the fact that standard roses cost a lot of money and that he had always wanted one of them ever since he was a little child. Uh, in short, he can tell me the why, can't he, behind uh, the what, the reason why what I did was so out of order. Guess which option my dad chose with me? <laughs> actually no he chose option two and I've never seen a standard rose bush since without feeling this kind of overwhelming tide of guilt <laughs> 
But seriously, though, do you see the value of that latter strategy? If we can be helped to see the why uh, when we get something wrong, it's so much more effective, isn't it, in modifying our behavior than just having the what kind of shouted at us. Uh, And that's the strategy that we're going to see Paul consistently adopt as he marches his way through 1 Corinthians. He looks at many issues that uh, need correction, and he could just say, no, 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 no. But actually, in every case, he wants to try and explain the why, and that's one of the reasons why 1 Corinthians is such a valuable letter uh, for us to read as believers now. We're going to see it for the first time, really, in our chapter today. Uh, We're going to be looking at chapter 3. Uh, But actually, the problem that Paul is going to address in chapter 3 is highlighted for the first time back in chapter 1. So if you turn with me to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. You'll see he says this, there are quarrels among you. I heard about it across the water. Someone told me. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos. And still another, I follow Cephas, who that just means Peter, and still another, I follow Christ. That's the standard rosebush that's biting the dust in Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians are vandalizing the fundamental ethos of Christianity right in front of Paul's eyes by turning it into this kind of celebrity pastor beauty contest. Now, Paul could just jump straight to the what here, couldn't he? He could omit the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, the bulk of chapter 3, and just jump straight on to chapter 3, verse 21. If you look there now, uh, he could just go straight there, where he says, look, no more boasting about human leaders. Stop it. Go to your room. But that isn't Paul's strategy, is it? Paul wants his readers to understand the why. And so everything that's just happened between chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse whatever it was, 21, is Paul laying out the why so that he can apply it to that what. And what is the why? Well, the why is really summed up in what Rod taught us last week. The Corinthians were quarreling because there was a huge contrast between the wisdom of the world that they'd been called out of Uh, and the wisdom of God that they had been called into. And they were failing to make that transition, weren't they? Uh, They were um, struggling to move from one world to the other. The why is that the Corinthians were still worldly. They hadn't left their old lives behind to follow Christ just yet. They were trying to have Jesus and the world. They had one foot in the boat of Christianity, and the other foot planted firmly on the shore, And Paul was concerned for them that they were going to go straight in the drink if they carried on like that. So let's read this chapter, chapter 3, and we'll see how Paul works now with this why that he's established uh, to help the Corinthians see their hearts and their obligations a bit more clearly. So stand with me for the reading of God's word. Um, We're going to read all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One Corinthians chapter three, verse one, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? When one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? 
And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames." Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in the sight of God, as it's written He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is God's word. Uh, Let's uh, take a seat here and we'll pray as we begin. Great God in heaven, we do so need you to speak. Uh, Your word teaches us from beginning to end that your presence and your rule cannot be divided. You are present with us by your spirit and you rule over us through your word and you wouldn't have us do one without the other. And so we pray, God, this morning that you would help us, maybe those of us who are really uh, desperate for your presence in our lives but maybe find it hard to surrender to your word that you would help us to put ourselves under it knowing that your presence and your rule cannot be divided but we pray God also for those of us who are maybe used to opening the bible and then just shutting it again we pray that you would work in us by your spirit because your presence and your rule cannot be divided we pray that you would come and meet us and apply these words to our hearts but to our lives also that we might change that we might live in a way which reflects what we're about to hear. And we ask it for Jesus' glory and for the good of those who might see uh, his uh, name and his character lived out in our lives. Uh, Amen. Okay. So um, let's get stuck in here. I wonder what struck you as we read through that passage together. Did anything kind of jump out at you? Uh, Struck me when I read it for the first time that Paul just punches really hard here. Uh, If Paul had focused maybe just on the what, if he'd left it just at a sharp rebuke back in chapter one, uh, if he had just uh, said, you know, okay, one of you follows a Paul, one of you follows Apollos, just stop it, just cut it out. That might have smarted a little. uh, But what Paul does here is so much more kind of a 
uh, powerful. Uh, He takes a great big breath and then he opens up this much bigger reality that the gospel is built on a totally different way of looking at the world uh, than the way of looking at the world that the Corinthians are used to with their cosmopolitan kind of Roman background. And as we start here, I want us to see that that couldn't be more relevant to us today. Because the way of looking at the world that the Corinthians were used to is pretty much exactly the same way of looking at the world that we are constantly being encouraged to adopt. Life according to the gospel is all about becoming less. It's about letting go of control uh, and letting God be God, letting him have the control that he deserves. It's about surrendering the need to be impressive. Uh, But according to the norms of Corinth and our world too, life is all about becoming more and gaining control or at least gaining the illusion of control and looking as impressive as you possibly can. And those uh, are norms which are kind of drilled into us, aren't they? You know, those are norms that are being pushed into our children from the very earliest age. But look at the, uh, the text here. It's interesting that Paul's going to make his kind of key move here, and I don't want us to miss it. You see, Paul, recognizing that fact, doesn't then kind of ask the Corinthians whether they buy into it. He doesn't say, okay, well, look, here's the worldview all around you. What do you think of it? Uh, he doesn't ask them whether this... A whole program of trying to become more and gain control and uh, look impressive is a, a credible lifestyle. He doesn't ask them whether it's a satisfying lifestyle. I don't think he would ask us that question either. You see, Paul is smart enough to know that just like the Corinthians, we would probably have some nice slick answer for that. We would have a way of justifying uh, intellectually the combination of what it is that we say we believe and how it is that we actually live. No, Paul looks at the Corinthians' behavior and he tells them what they think about the worldliness of their society by interpreting their actions. And his diagnosis is kind of frightening. You see, he doesn't see any evidence at all of the radical change in priorities that the gospel demands. You are still worldly. He says, in fact, he says it three times, once in verse two, twice in verse three, and he then repeats it with a series of other euphemisms in that paragraph. Whatever your theology is, says Paul, your actions show me what what your hearts truly believe. And if you look carefully at the text, I, I want you to see how serious he is about that. First, look with me at chapter three, verse one. Paul says, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Now, why does he use that bulky phrase as people who uh, live by the Spirit? Well, if you look back with me at the last part of chapter 2, starting at chapter 2, verse 10, uh, you'll see uh, there Paul tells us the real game changer in this whole debate about whether we do or don't see the world the way that God sees it is whether or not we have God's Spirit working inside us. If we don't have the Holy Spirit in us, If the Spirit of God hasn't set up his home in us, the wisdom of the gospel and all of this stuff about becoming less and giving up control and elevating other people instead of ourselves will seem like total garbage to us, at least in practice. It's only when the Spirit is alive and at work inside us that suddenly the lights go on and we see uh, all the frantic striving of the world uh, for the kind of uh, bankrupt uh, offering that it is. 
Follow on down with me to chapter 2, verse 14, and you'll see the climax of Paul's argument there. He says, the person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. They cannot understand them, because they're discerned only through the Spirit. So do you see what's happening in our chapter here? Paul is telling his readers, look guys, I don't think I can really write to you as people who uh, are filled with the Spirit of God because your behavior tells me uh, that you still think the wisdom of God is foolishness. The stuff you do, the stuff you value, the things you spend your money on uh, still tell me that you really don't think much of God's wisdom at all. And that's important for us for all kinds of reasons. You see, if I asked you today... uh, What should you look for in your life if you want to be confident that you're really filled with the Spirit? I wonder what you would say. I guess there'd be quite a few of us here who would jump to spiritual gifts at that moment, right? Do I speak in tongues? Has God equipped me to speak powerfully into the brokenness of my own life or into the lives of others? Has he equipped me to pray powerfully and prophetically uh, for other people? But is that really what marks out being filled with the Spirit of God? Paul doesn't think so, does he? We're going to see this later in 1 Corinthians 2. If we want to know uh, if we're really filled with the Spirit, Paul wants us to examine our behavior and look for evidence that we've said goodbye to the wisdom of the world. Are we done with wanting to be the leader? Are we done with wanting to have everything under our own control? Are we done with putting ourselves first and everybody else second? Because those are the marks of radical transformation that indicate that we are really God's children. And sadly, in Corinth, Paul just didn't see them. And that's not all. If we go back a little further in chapter 2, verse, uh, back to verse 6, we find that Paul there lays out another key characteristic of people who see things God's way. Paul tells us there that there is an audience for the wisdom of God out there, uh, that there are people who are drawn to it, uh, there are people who have a taste for it, uh, people uh, who see that it makes sense, and these people are called there the mature. But now look what happens in the first verse of our text. The mature, remember, are the people who get this message of wisdom, but when Paul picks up his pen to write to the Corinthians, he tells them that he can't address them as people who live by the Spirit because they are mere infants in Christ. So do you see right here at the start what Paul is going for in this part of the letter? Paul is looking at the behavior of his old friends in Corinth, and it's causing him deep disquiet about where they really stand with God. Paul can't be conclusive about it, of course. No human being can be conclusive in this kind of situation. He doesn't say, because of what I've heard, I can tell you for sure that you are outside the kingdom of God. In fact, as we go through the letter, we'll find that he's profoundly conflicted about this church in Corinth that he loves so dearly. He hopes for the best in them. Uh, in fact, back in his introduction in chapter 1, he thanked God for the grace that they'd received, and he expressed confidence that God would keep those who would receive that grace firm till the end. Uh, but now we start getting into the meat of the letter here. We find that he can't be sure that all of them do have that grace at all. You see, the reality of our spiritual condition is manifested in the way that we live. Let me say that again. The reality of our spiritual condition is manifested in the way that we live. We can't help it. 
Our lives necessarily show what we really believe. Whatever it is we think we believe. If we still live with the world's priorities, neither Paul nor anybody else can tell us that we're really Christians. And that's exactly what's happening here in Corinth. As Paul now goes on to show them in verses 5 through 17. Read verse 5 with me again. It goes like this. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So after stepping uh, right back from the problems that he heard about in in Corinth um, uh, and thinking about the why, uh, Paul's now going to dial right in and concentrate on the what, the specific manifestation of worldliness uh, that was affecting the church in Corinth. Uh, It was this issue, wasn't it, of building their pastors up into celebrities and then dividing into factions according to who followed who and who liked who the best. Now, in this next section of the text, Paul is going to take that why uh, that he's worked out. He's going to uh, un, uh, apply it now to this what, to this issue of um, uh, being uh, overly excited about pastors and factions and division. And he does it using two images. The first one is agricultural and the second one is architectural. Paul's teaching here, actually, you might enjoy looking at this later in your own time, is very reminiscent of the teaching of Jesus uh, it's funny, as I go on more and more in my kind of uh, growing uh, kind of love for and familiarity with the New Testament, uh, the connections that you see between Paul and Jesus just kind of start to come pouring out of the page. Um, here it's really striking, just in a casual way. Uh, Paul seems to be working with uh, Jesus' uh, parable of the growing seed from Mark chapter 4, and also with uh, Jesus' parable of uh, the wise and foolish builders. Remember, don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Uh, that's what's going on here. But Paul's going to take that uh, for a ride with his own priorities here into uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, into the Corinthians situation. Uh, so we're going to look at his two images one by one and see how he works with them. The agricultural image uh, begins in verse 6, where Paul says this, I planted the seed. And Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. The first thing we need to wrap our heads around here is just a bit more of the historical context. See, Paul chooses this image of a seed that gets planted by one person and then gets watered by another person because that's actually exactly how the church in Corinth began. Uh, You'll remember from our maps uh, that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth and that he planted the church there. There was no Christian witness in that city before Paul arrived. Um, But then uh, he went back to his home base in Antioch, didn't he? And what we find in the text of Acts is that shortly after that, a new man arrived in Corinth to continue the work of the gospel, and his name was Apollos. Now, you might remember, if you've got a good uh, recollection for these things from our Acts series a couple of years ago, the story behind that. Uh, I said, didn't I, that when Paul left Corinth, he dropped in at Ephesus and then went back home, and then he was going to come back to Ephesus to begin his third missionary journey. Well, actually, when he dropped in there at Ephesus, he left two people behind. He left Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila his tent-making partners from um, uh, Corinth. He left them there to uh, size up the situation and begin the work of church planting. Lo and behold, when he came back, they'd already planted a little church. Fantastic. But actually, Priscilla and Aquila, when they arrived in Ephesus, uh, found themselves uh, 
uh, in a society with this guy, Apollos. And we're told in Acts that he was there uh, speaking with great fervor and teaching people accurately about Jesus. Uh, although he didn't seem to have complete information about everything that Jesus uh, had lived and died and risen to achieve. Uh, and so Priscilla and Aquila invited Apollos into their home one Saturday afternoon. And they um, uh, brought him up the gospel learning curve a little bit. And uh, then after that, they uh, sent him off to Corinth to continue the work that Paul had started there. There must have been a lot of grace in that, don't you think? You know, for someone like Apollos, who's already out there teaching, to be humble enough to accept that uh, instruction and uh, additional advice from Priscilla and Aquila. A lot, a lot of sensitivity and gutsiness on Priscilla and Aquila's perspective. They placed a lot of value on the truth of the gospel, didn't they? To make sure that it wouldn't just be, you know, gospel minus a little bit is maybe good enough. No, that wasn't good enough for them. And God really honored that. Because from that point on, the New Testament gives us every reason to place confidence in this guy, Apollos. I wonder whether you notice from our text uh, how Paul tells us that he and Apollos have one purpose uh, and that they're co-workers in God's service. Paul doesn't kind of blow that stuff off lightly. Uh, that's a, a high endorsement there. And so the problem in Corinth wasn't that Apollos was there leading the congregation astray. Uh, the problem was that some members of the church there were forming factions around him and around Paul and making Apollos the man and Apollos the teaching style more important than Apollos the message, which was really just the same as Paul the message. And so that's the reality that Paul finds himself working with now in our letter. Uh, both he and Apollos, and maybe some other leaders as well, have got a stake in this Corinthian church. And Paul sees that the factions that are forming there are connected to that. In fact, that's a kind of a, a natural reaction, isn't it? You know, when strong personalities are involved, that's the kind of thing that we do. But Paul wants us to see that it's not a reaction, however natural it might seem to the wisdom of the world. It's not a reaction that is really tuned into the wisdom of God. And so Paul picks up this image of planting and watering a seed because he wants the Corinthians to grasp the fact that their reaction here, this faction building that they're doing is uh, not right. He wants them to see that planting and watering are really not that big of a deal. Uh, the really big deal is the person who creates the seeds in the first place. Think about it for a minute here. How clever do you really have to be to plant a seed? I guess it varies a bit from one variety of plant to another, doesn't it? But the basic essence of it is you make a little hole in the ground, you stick the seed in, and you cover it over again. Not rocket science, is it? The same goes for watering. You know, I'm sure there's a bit of finesse to, uh, you know, getting the, the amount of water right in different cases. You know, not too much, not too little, not too often. My dad would probably have plenty of advice on that topic. But all of that pales into complete insignificance, doesn't it, compared with creating the seed in the first place. Seriously, you could sit in a laboratory surrounded by, you know, uh, biology boffins uh, for thousands of years full of test tubes, kind of uh, full of enzymes and other proteins trying to design and construct from scratch a synthetic seed that has the capacity not only to grow and bear fruit, but produce seeds which are exact replicas of themselves. And you would get nowhere. 
Science isn't even remotely close to working out how that might be achieved. And that's Paul's point here, I think. The plant and the waterer are not even a fraction as interesting as the one who created seas in the first place. You know, if you were an alien flying over our world in a spacecraft, okay, and you had three things in front of you, the planter, the waterer, and the seed, which one would you be most interested in writing a report on to send back to your, you know, uh, uh, whoever's sent you out from Alpha Centauri somewhere? The seed is the most remarkable thing, isn't it? The fact that that even exists. So why are the Corinthians even doing this? Why were they uh, making such a big deal of their leaders? It sounds crazy, doesn't it, when we realize uh, how much greater God is than any minister he might use in any capacity to plant or water uh, the gospel that he has created. Uh, But crazy or not, it's super important for us to see this because we do exactly the same thing today. Just go down to your local Christian bookstore and see how many big smiling photographs of Christian authors and Christian speakers you can see. Uh, Look at uh, the next brochure that you get through the mail for a Christian conference. Just like the Corinthians, we seem determined, don't we, to turn the wonderful life-saving gospel of Jesus into some pathetic man-sized leadership cult. And I think I know why. Think about the very beginning of the Bible story. Think about what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when they fell. What was the essence of the temptation that they faced? What was it that Satan invited them to do? Do you remember? Satan told them that if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. And that's been the core of our problem ever since. We don't want to love and obey God. We want to be God. That's the great ambition of every human being on the surface of the earth, whether we know it or not. And when we see another person in whom that ambition seems to be realized in some way, we're inclined to put them on a pedestal as a kind of walking legitimization of what it is that we really hope we could be. The more godlike a person becomes in beauty or ability or initiative or the power to make things happen, the more apt we are to worship them. And so we put our leaders in the place that belongs to God alone. And it's just as toxic for them as it is for us. I'm uh, reading Daniel in my quiet times at the moment. I don't know how familiar you are with that book. But I've just been really struck by this fact in the lives of these Persian and Babylonian kings that the book tells us all about. You know, here are a bunch of guys who are living the dream of this human ambition to be God. In their day, the, uh, the Persian and Babylonian kings ruled over almost all of the known world. Uh, They made laws that could not be changed. Uh, They expected people to pray to them exclusively. It's not difficult to see, you know, whose shoes they're trying to fill here, is it? But what happened to them when they reached those dizzy heights? Uh, Turns out that they weren't able to bear the weight uh, of those uh, hopes when they were realized. Uh, They weren't able to sustain the fiction that they were able to be God. However much they wanted to. Think about the Daniel and the lion's den story. That's a familiar one to us. When Darius enacts his unchangeable decree that no one should worship any god other than himself was the very next thing that happens in the story. Well, he finds himself desperately trying to change his unchangeable decree, doesn't he? Because he's been tricked by his own courtiers into throwing his best official to the lions. So was he really the ruler over everything that he saw? like maybe his publicity pictures made it look? Of course not. He was manipulated by his own staff. He was a prisoner 
of his own appetites. He was embarrassed uh, by the way that the whole thing played out. And God showed himself sovereign over the whole situation, irrespective of what Darius thought anyway in the end, didn't he? Darius's effort to replace God was a total joke. And whenever someone puts themselves in God's place today, or when we put them in God's place on their behalf, it's still a total joke. There is only one being in this whole universe who is worthy of our worship. And those who serve him are merely planters and waterers. They will be rewarded according to their own labors, but they are nothing, nothing compared to the one their labors serve. Okay, so that brings us now to Paul's second image, the architectural image that I uh, uh, told you about earlier. And he kind of segues into that at the end of verse 9. I wonder whether you see it there. Uh, For we are co-workers in God's service, says Paul, and you are God's field, God's building. Having talked about the seed and the planter and the waterers, Paul completes his agricultural image by telling the Corinthians that they're the field in which the seed has been planted. But then he shifts immediately into this new metaphor. You are God's field, says Paul, God's building. And once again, I I hope you can see straight away why Paul thinks that is an apt analogy for the situation that we have in front of us in Corinth. Paul pictures his own role as that of the layer of the foundation And I guess we can all relate to that, right? Uh, There are two new houses being built in our neighborhood right now, uh, much to the uh, fascination of our children as we watch them going up kind of step by step. Uh, And watching that process, it's really easy to see what Paul had in mind here. You see, the first thing that happens when a new house is going to be built is that a team of guys uh, turn up on this newly cleared site and they dig an enormous hole in the ground. And then they put up some wooden shuttering and pour a foundation. And that foundation has a number of different jobs to do. Uh, The foundation defines the shape of the house that's going to be built on top of it. Uh, The foundation uh, also bears the weight of the house that's going to be built on top of it. The foundation ensures the stability of that house in the end, doesn't it? Uh, So the foundation is a very, very important part of the project. And you could say all of that about the gospel that Paul is describing here. Paul tells us that in Corinth, the laying of that gospel foundation was his job. But notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say that he was the foundation. He was responsible for digging the hole, for sure. Um, uh, But the, uh, uh, the foundation that he laid wasn't his idea, was it? The task of building and the costs of building and the ultimate shape of the building were all provided and defined by God. Paul says it himself, actually, in verse 10, doesn't he? By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation. Paul was merely a builder on the site. So then we reach the next stage in the metaphor where we discover that after completing the foundation, Paul left the building site and someone else arrived to take charge of building the walls and the floors and the stairs and the roof. And once again, he's thinking of Apollos, isn't he? His uh, purpose in telling this story, uh, again though, is to turn the tables on the Corinthians as he did with his uh, seed analogy. You see, the Corinthians wanted to set these different builders off against each other. They wanted to accentuate the differences between them and stress their allegiances to one or to the other. Uh, But Paul's image of the building, I hope you can see, just turns that whole process into a complete farce. Imagine for a moment the picture that it is that Paul wants us 
to imagine here. Imagine a situation where the person who's responsible for the walls and the floors and the stairs and the roof uh, arrives on the building site and attempts to build on a foundation other than the one that's actually been laid. How well would that actually work out in practice? What would it look like if that person ignored the structure that had already been established and just started kind of throwing up studs on the dirt, kind of like half on the concrete and half off? It would be a total disaster, wouldn't it? It certainly wouldn't be anything to praise or follow fanatically. It's like, what in the world are these guys doing? So do you see Paul's turning our attention from the praiseworthiness of the builders, which is all the Corinthians wanted to think about, onto the responsibilities of the builders, He wants the Corinthians to understand that their leaders are not to be praised and promoted as leaders of different camps or going in different directions. Their leaders are there to do just one thing, to build faithfully on the foundation of the gospel. And they will be held to account as to how well or badly they do it. Certainly there are differences in gifts and style between Paul and Apollos, as I guess there are between uh, any builders. But frankly, I don't think Paul cared how good a speaker Apollos was or wasn't, or how the two of them compared. That's the kind of thinking that characterizes the wisdom of the world, isn't it? No, Paul cared about the day when both of them would stand before Jesus and would be required to give an account of their labors and how faithfully they had followed the plan that God had defined And once again, that's profoundly relevant to us, isn't it? How do we assess who we will follow? How do we assess whose books we will read, whose curricula we will use, uh, whose ministries we will support, whose church we will go to? Um, It's easy to make those choices on the basis of who's the most popular, isn't it? Uh, Or how contemporary their message seems or who else we know is following them. But in Paul's mind, that all just smacks completely of the wisdom of the world. Paul wants us to ask ourselves whether the leaders we have in our lives are building responsibly on the foundation of Jesus. Do they sound like Jesus sounded? Do they live like Jesus lived? Are they building with gold and silver and costly stones, as Paul puts it here, working as those who know the great significance and value of the work that they're engaged in? Or are they working with wood and hay and straw, building things big maybe, building things fast, but not building things that will actually endure? But there is a twist here, isn't there, at the end of this uh, second image that we didn't have in the first one. In the agricultural image back in verses 6 through 9, we never found out what kind of plant the seed would become in the end. But here in the architectural image, we do find out what kind of building uh, God is planning to construct. Uh, Do you see it there in verses 16 and 17? Uh, It's not a house like the ones going up in my neighborhood. It's a temple. And this is the reason why this whole celebrity pastor mentality in the Corinthian church and in our church uh, is just so out of whack. In the Bible, a temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. A temple is a place where men and women can live safely in the presence of a holy God. And this is something we better believe that no human leader, however gifted, however charismatic, can construct. There are thousands of temples in this world that have been built with the most amazing attention to detail, where the presence of God is profoundly absent. 
The truly remarkable thing about a functioning temple is not the people who build it, but the person who lives in it. And so just as we saw in the contrast between the planter and the water and the seed itself in that agricultural image, we get the same lesson here. The builders of the temple, the people who pour into us and who encourage us and who influence us with God helping them, are not even a fraction as interesting as the person who inhabits the temple that they are helping to build. They will be rewarded according to their labors, but they are nothing, nothing compared to the one that their labors serve. So what does all this tell us about our own Christian lives here as we conclude? Well, quite a lot. Rod said to us last week, didn't he, that um, uh, we are living in Corinth here in 21st century America. The issues that Paul is addressing in this text are live issues here in our culture. Uh, We do a better job, I think, of either idolizing or demonizing our sports stars, our musicians, uh, and our politicians and our pastors than probably any other society that's ever lived. Paul's concluding command in verse 21, so then, no more boasting about human leaders, comes straight across the centuries, aiming right at the bullseye of our own hearts, doesn't it? No human being deserves the kind of worship that the Corinthian church were throwing at their leaders. And no human being can bear the burden of that worship if they ever find themselves receiving it. But for all the strength of the connection we feel to the Corinthians on this issue, we still need to remember that Paul has a strategy in writing. Paul didn't only write the command, no more boasting about human leaders, did he? He didn't only present them with the what. Paul wanted the Corinthians to think about the why. And I think he would have us think about that why too here as we close. Why were the Corinthians obsessed with elevating their leaders in this way? Why were they dividing into factions, uh, each of which believed that they were better than the other one? You know, it's so familiar. Well, the reason was their worldliness. They had one foot in the boat of the gospel and the other foot planted firmly on the shore. And that reality manifested itself in their behavior. Do you see how Paul returns to that now as he concludes in verses uh, 18 through to the end? He says, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools that you might become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Paul is diving back into the material that he unpacked in chapter 2 here to remind the Corinthians that the stakes are really high. He isn't asking them just to tone down the celebrity pastor rhetoric and carry on much as before. Paul is concerned that their very salvation is in the balance. The symptoms of leader worship in Corinth were a big deal for sure, but the underlying disease that they pointed to was a far bigger deal. The Corinthians' leader worship called into question the very reality of the spiritual life that they claimed to be enjoying because their leader worship was an indication that they were still wedded to the world. So this text calls for some self-examination on our part. Leader worship may not be the issue for us. Praise God if it's not. But the why that Paul identifies here is not limited to that one what. Paul, I think, would encourage us to be careful about any kind of behavior that manifests a devotion to the wisdom of the world, be it materialism or obsession with self-image or desire to control everything and everyone around us. Because all of that points in exactly the same direction. 
Our behavior can't help but manifest where our confidence truly lies. It can't help but bring to light what it is that we really believe. And if it shows us that we still have the hook of worldly wisdom in our mouths, dragging us wherever it wants, we need to take action. We need to get on our knees. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, writes Paul, you should become fools so that you may become wise. See, the message of this text to each of us is that we have to be willing to become fools in the eyes of the world. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Our friends and our families, even our own hearts may tell us that we're crazy to surrender our desires and our instincts and our aspirations to Jesus. But if we do, and only if we do, this text tells us that all the scrabbling for status and significance is ended in an instant. Because in Christ. Everything that we need is already ours. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we call out to you, praying that you might minister to us uh, with the truths from your word that you have drawn out this morning. God, I dare say that there are many of us myself included, who look at this and we see uh, some worrying symptoms in what our behavior uh, indicates about what we believe. If only it could be uh, a kind of exam where we just had to write down the things that we think are true, uh, rather than it actually being a practical uh, where our lives have already shown what it is that we think is true. And as I look back over my own life, even in this last week, I see that there's cause for concern and so we pray Lord God that as we think about our hearts and lives that you would help us to bring these things before you on our knees we pray God that you would go to work on us we pray that you would help us to 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 uh, be willing to to dive into your way of doing things we pray that you would help us to trust you enough to let go of some of the things which the world tells us are essential. We pray that you would help us to be willing to look foolish in the eyes of people around us who might advise us in other directions um, because we believe and want to show practical confidence in the fact that you really know what you're talking about. So, great God in heaven, take our hearts and make them more what you want them to be. We pray that we might not just be infants only needing uh, or only able to manage uh, kind of baby food. Help us to grow up and be mature as believers. People who are able to serve you usefully in your world for the glory of Jesus. Amen.